Amen, church. You can have a seat this morning. Well, as we pray together this morning in corporate prayer, I just want to read a passage of Scripture to you to set the stage for this in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus receives some messengers from John the Baptist. And following their departure, he says that there's been no one been, who's been born of, uh, of women on the earth who's greater than this man. Speaking of John the Baptist. And then he makes this statement about the generation who had received John the Baptist. He says in verse 31 of Luke 7, To what then shall I compare the people of just this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I was reminded this week of the fact that here in the passage, based upon Jesus' ministry and his incarnation, that he was looked upon and called even a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. As I thought about my own life this week, And I hope as you think about your own life this morning, that you're grateful indeed that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Because had he not been a friend of sinners, none of us would be here. We would all be destroyed by God's just anger against sin. But indeed, he was a friend of sinners. But he chose to eat with tax collectors with women of ill repute even within their culture, that he ministered to those who came to him without their holiness before he entered into their need. And I wonder just how much you and I reflect that in our lives as friends of sinners. I wonder just how much I, I personally, I've been challenged this week to think about, are there places or spaces in my life in which I'm engaging with people who are far from God? Right? We, we have all kinds of rhythms within the life of the church for Bible study and life groups and connecting with other people who share our values. And we ought to have those things to help build us in the faith. But there also ought to be places and spaces in our lives where we're engaging people who are far from God, people who are lost, people whom the world would even look at and classify as sinners. There ought to be those regions of our life in which we're making connections with people in order to be able to do what our mission statement says we're here to do, which is to share the gospel, right? To have a gospel witness and establish a gospel witness here in this community. And so whenever people look at our church, would they look at us and say, well, there's a, there's a, there's a great holy huddle going in there, on in there on Sunday mornings, Or where they say that place preaches a Jesus who indeed is a friend of sinners who wants to bring about compassion and transformation in the lives of people who are far from God. And so this morning as we pray together, I would invite you to pray. One, that our lives would look more like His in the way that we engage those who are far from God and that our church would be known as a place that holds forth the light and the beauty and the glory of Christ for people who are coming from all kinds of of histories and all kinds of stories so they might know the beauty and the redeeming power of Christ in their life as you have and as I have. 
Would you pray with me this morning? I'll give you some space to do so, and after that, I'll close us. Father, even as we have sung this morning about your great love for us, even as we reflect upon the words of John in his gospel and in his epistle about the depths of your love for us, Father, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That you've loved the world so deeply that you sent your one and only Son And I thank you that whenever he came, he did not come seeking those who were well, but those who were sick. For if he had come seeking those who were well, I know I would not be here. But because he came seeking those who were sick, those who needed a physician to bring about healing in their lives, God, I am here. And so are my brothers and sisters in this room this morning. So, Father, in our quest for holiness, may indeed there be a layer of insulation in our lives, but not a layer of isolation from a lost and hurting world, from people who are far from you, people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. people who are still wandering like the one sheep that the good shepherd left the 99 for and went and pursued. For the Gentiles who need to see the good deeds of your people so that they may repent and turn and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Father, the Bible is filled with your heart for the nations and for peoples. Even calling Abram from a land which he knew as home to go to a place which he did not know so that you could make him and the people who would come after him a beacon to the world, a light to the nations, a blessing to the world. And through him provide your son. So, Father, may we as a people chase after holiness in our own lives and together as a body, but may it never be to the exclusion of those who are lost. May it never be to the neglect of those 
whose lives are shattered in sin. But Father, may we as individual Christians in our church be known in this city in which you've placed us as representatives of Jesus, who indeed was a friend of sinners, who cared for the broken, and spoke most critically to the religious people who were puffed up in their own self-righteousness. Not to those whose lives were in shambles because of their unrighteousness. So Father, would you cultivate in us a heart that has the same reflexes as your son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning at this time in our service is where we'll dismiss our kiddos who are third grade and under to go down the hall with Miss Ashley, Miss Allison. I think Mr. Jim's already headed that way down there in the Blue Redeemer kids shirts. So third grade and under, they'll go out for their lesson as we open the scriptures for our sermon this morning. Um, they always like to make noise as they go. It's, it's a good thing to hear those kids' voices in the church, isn't it? Well, if you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you've chosen to join us today. Uh, if you are new with us and would like to leave us a little information about yourself, there should be a card somewhere around where you are seated. Uh, if you fill out that card uh, with some information about yourself and drop it in the box at the kiosk on your way out, we'll send you some information about us as a church body. Um, in addition, on the other side of that's a place for prayer requests. If there's things we can pray with you or for you about, it would be our joy to do that. Uh, if you don't want to fill out a card, but would rather do things electronically, if you're online or in person, you can go to the homepage of our website and find a places to, uh, to submit all that same information there electronically or digitally as well. Um, if you've got a Bible, Genesis 2 is where we're going to be today. Um, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, it'll, the text that we'll be, I'll be preaching from this morning will be on the screen behind me as we read it here momentarily. But Genesis chapter 2. Uh, as we continue in this series called Foundations, Gaining Clarity in an Age of Confusion, aiming to cut through the cultural narratives that we receive on a daily basis with truth from Scripture. And there's no better place to go whenever the cultural winds are ch constantly changing and it seems like the sand is shifting underneath our feet continually than back to the beginning and see how God ordered and designed the world to work, how sin shattered it, and how God set in motion a plan to restore. And so that's where we're headed in this series. Um, and it's been fun for me so far. I don't know if it's been fun for you. That might be debatable. Um, but this morning we find ourselves in Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. I'll read it for our hearing, and we'll consider what it has to say to us in our lives. In Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes these words, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work, all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Listen, church, rhythm is an important part of our lives. Now, you know that to be true if you've ever been on a dance floor, okay? Um, and you know that to be true if you've ever tried to learn a musical instrument, that rhythm is an important thing when it comes to the arts, okay? I've been on a dance floor before, but it is not a thing of beauty, okay? When I've, I've been on a dance floor, it is just motion, 
It's just movement. It's not rhythmic in any way, shape, or form. But whenever you watch great dancers, whether it be from classical dancing and ballet or whether it be to modern dancing and hip-hop, they all have great rhythm. They're able to move rhythmically, and it's a thing of beauty. In addition, there's rhythm within music. In fact, without rhythm, music is just noise. Okay, it's just noise. If there's not rest in the midst of the notes that are being played, it's just constant noise that's grating on your ears and perhaps even on your soul. Because in the arts, rhythm creates beauty and it creates harmony. But listen, in addition, not only does rhythm create beauty and harmony in the arts, but it also sustains life in our bodies. Do you know that our hearts have an electrical system in them which tells it when to beat, essentially, to maintain rhythm? The electrical system in our hearts that causes our hearts to beat and pump blood through our bodies, our hearts beat in a particular rhythm. In fact, if your heart has an arrhythmia, which means that it has an irregular heartbeat, right, so it's beating out of rhythm... Right? That can be a dangerous situation for some people. If it's left untreated, it can cause strokes. It can cause heart failure, cardiac arrest, damage the heart, the brain, and other organs within your body. So if you have a heart that is out of rhythm, then it can cause significant damage to your physical body. And I would say to you this morning, church, that not only does it create beauty, not only does it create harmony, not only does it sustain life, but a life, a life, that is, lacks rhythm. Without this proper God-ordained rhythm is headed toward a meltdown. It's like a heart, right, that's beating within the chest. When it's got an arrhythmia, it's, it's a ticking time bomb waiting to explode in your chest. And that's what life is like without proper God-oriented, God-ordained rhythms. So this morning, we want to look at these first three verses of Genesis 2 to see what they have to say to us about what the rest of the scriptures are going to call Sabbath. This rhythm of rest that God ordains whenever he creates the world. So we want to see what God does and then how we should respond. So first of all, what does God do as he establishes creation? Here's what God does. He establishes a pattern in creation whenever he creates. He establishes a pattern. See, when my daughter was little, I remember my mom making for her a dress. Okay, my mom has sewn for years, and whenever she had her first granddaughter, it was game on, okay, right? There were all blankets for her, sewing blankets for her, sewing clothes for her, right? Little rompers and onesies and all kinds of things, but then when my daughter adopted an Our Generations doll, which by the way is the knockoff version at Target of American Girl doll, because we can't afford American Girl dolls, right? And so we got the Our Generations doll, and whenever she got that Our Generations doll, my mom had this light go off in her head. She said, I'm going to make a dress for Sarah and for her doll that match. So she makes this beautiful dress for both Sarah and the doll. And for about a year, my daughter wore that dress, dressed her doll in that dress, and carried the doll around so they had little matchy-matchy outfits going on, right? But whenever my mom made those dresses for both Sarah and the doll, 
Uh, She did so on the basis of a pattern that told her where to cut and where to sew. In other words, there was a model that she was following that allowed her to reproduce those outfits both to scale in a, a child who was growing and a doll who would never grow. Right? There was a pattern that she used so she could create those things. There was something that she looked at as an example or a model. And I would say this to you this morning, that throughout the rest of the Bible, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, serves as an archetype, a pattern, an example, or a model for what would later be called Sabbath, which is a rhythm of rest that God establishes when He creates. Now, in the text, the seventh day stands offset from the other six days of creation in Genesis 1. And as one author has observed, there's at least five ways that the Sabbath day is offset from the other six. The first one, there was no creation formula. God didn't say, the text doesn't say, and God said, because His creative word was not required because His creative work had been finished. Two, the seventh day did not have the usual closing refrain, and there was evening and there was morning to indicate the day's end. Third, the seventh day was the only day to be blessed and made holy by God Himself. Fourth, the seventh day stood outside the paired days of creation because there was no corresponding day to it in the preceding six. And fifth, unlike the six creative days, the number of the day, the seventh day, is repeated three times within two verses. There is this emphasis on the seventh day through its repetition. Now there's more, okay? There is literary and theological significance given to the seventh day that we see in the structure of verses 2 and 3 as well. On the literary side of the coin, then the Hebrew, listen, this is where it gets a little fascinating, all right, for all you Bible trivia nerds out there, okay? In the Hebrew, there are seven words in three sentences in verses 2 and 3, and the designation seventh day shows up at the midpoint of each of those sentences. So you've got three words before it, three words after it, and it is at the center. In other words, the seventh day is at the very center of the literature and logic of these three three sentences in which it is repeated. There is a literary beauty to that in the original language and a theological significance to it. Because furthermore, the seventh day is mentioned, every time it's mentioned, the three times, it's elevated above the other six days. For on the seventh day, God does these three things. He finishes all of His work. He blessed the seventh day and he makes the seventh day holy. So it's repeated three times. There are three things that are said about that seventh day in these three sentences at which the seventh day stands at the midpoint, three words before, three words after, at the center of the logic and literature and theology in Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is the seventh day. So God finishes, rests, blesses, and sets it apart. But I may beg the question then, why does God need rest? Why, why? I mean, seriously? Right? Is he tired? Right? Is he just run down and exhausted from expending himself on the other six days? Is he completely worn out and run ragged? Has he been to a day full of soccer games in the heat? 
right? This can't be true because you can't exhaust omnipotence. God is all-powerful, right? There is nothing that He cannot do, and nothing exhausts Him. Or maybe is He frustrated, angry, or discouraged? Because sometimes I need rest because I'm upset, right? The things that I put my hands to are not going the way that I thought they would, and so I need to step back, and I need to recalibrate, and I need to rethink and reorganize and re-strategize. Is that what's going on here? It can't be, because in verse 131, we're told that everything that God had made, He stands back and says, Behold, it's very good. It's all pleasing in His eyes at that point, so He can't be frustrated with the way things are going. So what does it mean, then, that God needs rest? Does it mean they went on a vacation to like one of those tropical islands and stayed in a little bungalow out over the water for a few days? Right? That's not exactly what's going on. When the texts say that God rested, it means that He ceased from His work of creation. That's what that word literally means. That He ceased, that He pulled back from bringing anything else into existence. That He ceased from His work of creation. He's still sustaining the world right at that point. Because if God stopped sustaining the world, then the universe would collapse on itself. However, he rests from his work of creation, from being productive in the way that we define productivity in the previous six days. He rests from his creative acts. And listen, church, there has never been a culture in human history that does not need to think about this more than the one in which we live. See, this pattern that God establishes teaches us that there is more to life than work. There's more to life than waking at 5 a.m., commuting to the office, leaving at 5 p.m. if you're lucky, getting home at 6.30, eating dinner, taking a shower, going to bed so you can get up the next morning and do it all over again. There's more to life than submitting proposals and answering emails and completing projects and planning and strategizing and making sales and going to marketing meetings and making pitches or even working with our hands. There's more to life than work. And this pattern of work and ceasing from your labor would come to be known in the rest of the Bible as Sabbath, this rhythm that God establishes as a pattern in creation. All the way back in the beginning. So how do we express it? What do we do with it? Let me give you three things this morning. And the first one is this. First, we need to learn to cherish the sacredness of Sabbath. I've done a lot of weddings over the course of my pastoral ministry over these last 25 years. And it went, you know, sometimes couples write their vows. I just want to be, go on record and say I'm not really a big fan of that because often when they write their vows, it's an expression of how they feel about the person at the moment, not what they're committing to do for them in the future. Right? Because traditional vows are about committing what you're going to do that per- for that person in the future. And the traditional vows go, go like this. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. To cherish. What does it mean to cherish? And why do I use that word in relation to the Sabbath? See, to cherish something means that we value it. That we prize it, that we treasure it, that we take pleasure in, delight, and attach importance and significance to it. Right? That's why we use that language in marital vows. 
And so I use that word in relation to Sabbath because in verse 3 we're told that God made the seventh day holy. He made it holy. And listen, this is, this is fascinating. Another little Bible trivia piece for you, right? But this is the first thing in all of the Bible that God declares to be holy. That God declares to be set apart. That God declares to be sacred. And when God sets something apart, when God declares something to be sacred, listen, we should value it, we should prize it, we should treasure it, we should assign significance and value and worth and importance to it, we should delight in it, we should cherish it because God has said it is sacred. God has set it apart. God has said it is holy. And through the rest of the Old Testament, We're going to see how this sacredness is fleshed out in three distinct ways. First, Sabbath is set apart as a celebration of God's work in creation. It's set apart as a celebration of God's work in creation. When God delivers the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment that he delivers has to do with patterning their daily lives after the rhythm God established. In Exodus 20, 8-11, we find the fourth commandment, and it reads as follows. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For... In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In verses 8 to 10, God calls the people to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Then he goes on to tell them that they should rest from their work, cease from their productivity, pull back from their creative labors, not only them, but also all their cows and their pigs and their donkeys, okay, and their camels, and whatever the livestock they had, in addition, all of their servants in their households, in addition, all the sojourners in the land, the aliens, those who are traveling through, and those who are seeking refuge, everyone should scale back, pull back from their creative labors, from being productive in the way that we define productivity. Then in verse 11, he tells them why. He says, for, it's a reason, for in six days... The Lord made all that is. He rested on the Sabbath. He blessed it and made it holy. So when we rest on Sabbath, church, we're cherishing what God cherishes. We're patterning our lives after God's rhythm and celebrating His creative work. We're setting it apart, listen, to remember, to remember that we are creatures, not the Creator. And what that means is that we are finite, limited beings, not infinite, unlimited beings. In other words, we have thresholds. We have capacities that become drained and exhausted, whereas God is never drained and exhausted. We are. And whenever we set aside the Sabbath to remember that He is Creator, we are creatures, we cannot continue to push the limits of an arrhythmic life without there being significant consequences for our souls. Because we're limited. 
The second way it shows itself as sacred through the rest of the Old Testament is that it's set apart as a celebration of God's work in redemption. See, later in Deuteronomy 5, when Moses is recounting the Ten Commandments in this farewell sermon that he delivers to the people because he's not going into the land. Right? He's going to die outside of it. But before he goes in, Deuteronomy, you think I preached for a long time. Read Deuteronomy. Moses preached for a really long time. And in chapter 5, uh, verses 12 to 15, he expounds on the fourth commandment once again, but even further. And listen to what he says. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Then he says, verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now listen, if you read Israel's story in captivity in Egypt, you will see that they were cruelly overworked and oppressed by their Egyptian captors, even forced to make bricks without straw. What does that mean? you got to do the labor without us providing the materials for you to do the labor. And Pharaoh, listen, they only, Pharaoh would only let God's people go when God flexed, okay? Right? So God just, mm, he flexes his muscles. And what does he do? He shows up with his mighty outstretched hand at Passover to bring his people out. And with their redemption from Egypt came the rest that had not been theirs for centuries. So on the Sabbath, as they rested, they would reflect not only on their creator, but also on their redeemer. The one who had rescued them out of the hand of Pharaoh. They would remember that God had done all that was necessary to redeem, to, to save, and to rescue them from Pharaoh's hand. Milk and honey. And so you see, these two versions of the fourth commandment in the Old Testament show us that Sabbath was both a celebration of God as creator and as redeemer. And it was, as one author said, he wrote this, he said, the Sabbath's purpose was to grace God's people. It was a gift to them that no other people on the face of the earth had apart from Israel. It was to grace their bodies with the rest of the, of, of the Genesis rhythm and to grace their souls, as he says, with heaven's rhythm providing Israel with rest from their labor so they could focus on God and gratefully celebrate Him as their Creator and Redeemer. Celebration of Him as Creator, celebration of Him as Redeemer, but then third, it's Sabbath throughout the rest of the Old Testament becomes a sign of God's covenant relationship with His people. Again, in the book of Exodus, after the tabernacle was built, the Sabbath was regarded as a sign of God's covenant. In Exodus 31, 12 and 13, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep the, my Sabbaths. For this, what's this? 
keeping of the Sabbaths, is a sign between me and you that throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Further down in verses 16 and 17 of Exodus 31, we read, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. No other people had it. None but Israel had this blessed law that God had given. And in fact, in Exodus 31, the people are told, if you violate the Sabbath, if you profane the Sabbath, the punishment is death. And listen, I will say this. We live under a covenant of grace and not of law. But I will tell you, if you continue to profane and violate the Sabbath, you will die. (laughs) You will. Through exerting labor 24 7 365 it will run you into the ground there are natural consequences that god has ordered so the sabbath persisted through the centuries as this sign that this people belonged to god because they set this seventh day apart as sacred and they reflected on god as their maker that they are finite they have limited reserves god is their redeemer he did everything to rescue them from pharaoh's hand and this is a sign that i belong to him that we belong to him see the sabbath was a sacred as a celebration of god's work as creator redeemer and this covenant sign now listen all this sounds so intriguing doesn't it All this great biblical, theological knowledge. But the question is this. Do you cherish what God has called sacred? Do you cherish it? Do you value it? Do you give it significance and importance? Do you treasure it? Is that a part of the natural rhythm of your life? You see, in the fourth commandment, when God says, remember the Sabbath, he's not, this is not, it's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, do you remember that time? Like, when I made everything out of nothing and spoke it all into existence, and then on the seventh day I rested? Yeah, that time, remember, that was pretty cool, right? That's not what he's saying. Because the word remember involves not just reflection, but Action. Action. Like to remember means to act on what you recall, right? Think of the, 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 the day on our calendar that we celebrate as a nation every May called Memorial Day. On Memorial Day, it is a remembrance of all those who've come before us, who have given their lives, sacrificed themselves in service to our country that we might be able to enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. And so we remember their sacrifice. But listen, Memorial Day is not just about hamburgers and hot dogs, and cooking and thinking about those who have died at the, at, the, at the veterans' memorials. But the purpose of Memorial Day is not only to be this looking back, but also to call us here today to the same kind of service, the same kinds of sacrifice that ensured that we get to enjoy the things that we enjoy. That's what the word in the Bible remember, remember means. Yes, you reflect, but you also act on it. So the question is, do you cherish what God has called sacred? The Sabbath. We learn to cherish the sacredness of the Sabbath. Not only do we cherish its sacredness, but also, church, listen, secondly, we enjoy the blessing of the Sabbath. Enjoy the blessing of the Sabbath. In verse 3, God also blesses the seventh day. 
To bless in the Old Testament means to endue it with power for prosperity or success or fruitfulness or longevity. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 58, Isaiah, the prophet is singing about the blessing of the Sabbath. And listen to what he says. He says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going to your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or take, talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'm still thinking about what all that means. But I want it. <laughs> it's a blessing that God pronounces. Right? Heritage of your father Jacob rests from all sides from your enemies as you honor God. This day of rest is endued with power and prosperity and fruitfulness as to rightly orient our lives to God as our creator and as our redeemer. But it also practically extends our lives for productivity without burnout. There's a blessing associated with this seventh day that can only be enjoyed by those who observe it. This kind of rhythm in their lives. And when we refuse to embrace the rhythm of Sabbath, our lives begin, become misshapen. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. When I was a kid, uh, right, I grew up in, an, in, in the age as, 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 as video games were just coming online through like right, Atari. All right, some of you are like, what in the world is an Atari? Okay? Right, it is the, one of the original video game systems with like five pixels on the screen. Okay? That's all you could play with. Right? But I grew up in an age just as those things were coming online. And so before we had any kind of video game system, we had all kinds of toys in the toy box in our home. And one of the toys we had in the toy box was a slinky. All right? A slinky. I can remember the jingle, right? It's slinky. It's slinky. For fun, it's a wonderful toy. It walks downstairs, alone or in pairs, and makes a slinkity sound. It's a spring, a spring, a marvelous thing. Everyone knows it's slinky. It's slinky, it's slinky. For fun, it's a wonderful toy. It's fun for a girl and a boy. And this slinky was this, first these metal right, springs that were all coiled up and then they became plastic. Right? But you could take them and you could make them march down the stairs. You give it enough moment, you give it a tip over the edge and it would just go all the way down. Until siblings began to fight over them. I remember my sibling and I fighting over them. And I'm holding one side, he's holding the other. And what happens to that thing? It gets stretched out, doesn't it? Some of you remember this, right? These springs got stretched out. And as they got stretched out, they no longer functioned the way they were designed to function. Right? You would turn them over and they would just roll down the stairs. They weren't like slowly walking down the stairs because they had no more elasticity left within them. And the same is true in life. When we stretch ourselves so thin at the margins, we forfeit the blessing of Sabbath and our lives become misshapen. And they're no longer able to function the way God has designed them to function. And this happens in a world that is filled with both professional and personal obligations. Listen, I read an article a while back called, Is the Modern Pace of Life or of Work Killing Us? 
It's written by a lady by the name of Anna McNamee. And she describes in that article what she calls a nation on the edge. And she speaks about one encounter she had with someone working in the corporate world. It says, not long ago, she says, this is her words, not long ago I visited the office of an aspiring corporate bigwig. I was running late. Have no fear, Ian assured me when I phoned to make my excuses. I'll be here until at least nine. When I finally arrived, the office was still packed with bustling workers. A somewhat crumpled underling with his sweat patches under his arms and bags under his eyes ushered me into a room. There, peering out from behind a stack of open folders and a computer screen was my contact. Don't worry, he said again, cutting my groveling short. I had a lunch meeting, and so I'm just catching up on some of my emails. If you don't reply, as soon as you get them, people are going to think you're a slacker. A quick game of I Spy around his inner sanctum told a sorry tale. Several changes of clothing hung on the back of the door, just in case. He had his own coffee machine. The staff canteen closes at 5.30. And a miniature basketball hoop. I can't always make it to the gym. Perhaps most poignant of all was the collection of children's books in one drawer. My wife likes it if I can read a kid's, the kids a story on the phone a couple of times a week. He admitted sheepishly. They just, so just so they don't forget who I am. Gentle probing revealed a 13-hour workday was par for the course for this prime specimen of management material. The framed photos of a grinning wife and three adorable children balanced on one corner of the desk were no doubt there to remind him what they looked like. The fact was he'd also been working weekends and hadn't really seen them in a while. I know it must be crazy, he admits, but I work in a very competitive field and it would just wouldn't look right if I went home when there was still work to be done and deadlines were looming. There's always either a crisis or something left to do. And listen, in our professional worlds, there will always be something left to do. Always. I had, peop- I had, I had former members of this church at one point say to, say to me, about the expectations of a staff person that we had hired years ago. That they ought to be working probably 50 to 60 hours a week. Which then made me reflect on what they thought of how much I should be working. Which truth be known, right? There are some weeks where I work 35 hours a week. There are some weeks where I work 50 hours a week depending on what's going on. There's an ebb and flow to my professional obligations as a pastor. But if I'm to embrace or adopt the same mentality as the corporate culture in which we live, then what kind of spiritual leader would I be in the church where I'm saying that God has set apart Sabbath as sacred and endued it with a blessing to give you power and prosperity if I was just going to blow right through all of my margins in life? There is a blessing associated with the church. We live in a world of personal obligations as well. Going at breakneck speeds 24-7. Laundry, meals, yard work, dishes, dusting, vacuuming, sweeping, mopping, grocery shopping, and then dropping. Birthday parties, baby showers, kids sports, activities. Not every time we see someone we hadn't seen in a while and you ask, how are you doing? They're like, oh man, you know, just like everybody else, busy going 100 miles an hour. Uh, that's, our, that, that's just how we introduce, reintroduce ourselves to people. What is wrong? What is wrong? So practically, how do we cherish and enjoy the blessing of Sabbath? 
Let me give you two things. First, repent. Repent. See, rather than looking at this pattern that God establishes in Genesis 2 and these commands that God gives in Exodus and Deuteronomy and, and thinking to ourselves, you know, maybe I should give that whole Sabbath thing a try. Sounds like a helpful piece of advice. Right? That's not the first step. The first step is for you and I to turn away from our attempts to build our identity on our productivity. That drives so much of our burnout in life. Is to build our understanding of ourselves on how much we can create and contribute to the bottom line. So we have to repent from that and confess to God that we have violated this rhythm of rest in our lives. Think about it. We wouldn't approach any of the other Ten Commandments this way, would we? We wouldn't go, man, I should give that whole not murdering people a thing a try. Right? We wouldn't approach any of the other commandments that way. Like, I, 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 I should really give that, that, that whole uh, not having any of the gods. Or maybe I should try to incorporate that into my life. Right? We all, we, no, we, we say we repent from those things. In the same way that we repent from a failure to establish rhythms of rest that God established as a pattern at the, at the foundations of the world. So repent. But then second of all, set, I would say set Sabbath up in your life. If you notice in the, in the fourth commandment, God says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Just like anything else in our lives, when we plan for something, it tends to happen more often than we, when we don't plan for it. And so for the other six days, we're working hard, okay? We're being fruitful. We're being productive. We're patterning our, our, our activity after God's as He's bringing things into existence and it's creative work and so we're you we're using our energies and our gifts to bring things into existence to be productive in the way that God was productive see and the way you set Sabbath up in your life is by working hard for those six days and then establishing a seventh to rest because the degree of enrichment that's brought to your life by Sabbath is oftentimes proportionate to how well and hard you work the other six days of the week do everything that you can to rest and recalibrate on the Sabbath. Now, there are things you still have to do, right? Like, there's God's still sustaining the earth, okay? There's things you still have to do, like you have to change your kids' diapers on the Sabbath, right? It's probably a good idea. CPS will show up on your doorstep if you stop doing that, okay? You've got to feed your kids. However, aim to get everything else done in the other six days, your vocational duties and your personal duties, so that there's a seventh day, a rhythm of rest for reflection on the fact that you are a finite being and that you are loved and cherished by God as one whom He has redeemed and saved and rescued. And this is a sign that you belong to Him because you're trusting Him by laying down your labor. Think about it. In our day, like we can go to the pantry and grab a snack on Sabbath, right? In their day, if you didn't work in the field, you didn't eat. Okay? So there's, there is a significant level of trust that had to be established with God in their relationship with Him that He's going to provide for them even on those days when they're not working. That He's going to be enough. So we cherish the sacredness Sabbath. We enjoy the blessing of Sabbath. But then finally, I will say this. 
that the Sabbath points to something bigger than just a day of rest throughout the scriptures. Not only do we cherish its sacredness and enjoy its blessing, but finally I would say that we learn to rest. We need to learn to rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, we read, On one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, and how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. By declaring Himself Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus says, I'm over what is allowed and not allowed on the Sabbath. He's saying the Sabbath was created for humanity. It wasn't like God said, I have this ingenious idea as the, as the climax of all creation. I'm going to create a seventh day. And then I'm going to create people to rest on it. That's not what He says. That's not how that works. He creates people. Humanity is the climax of creation, and then he creates the seventh day for them. For them to have rest. Not so they could argue about what was allowed and what wasn't allowed, what wasn't allowed on Sabbath, to create heavy burdens for people to carry around and anxiety over whether they had gone too far, lifted too much, taken too many steps. But Jesus says, I'm here and now, and ultimately Sabbath rest would point to me as the one in whom you would have rest from all your labor, from all your works. And then the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 would point us in the same direction. Hebrews 4 is the definitive passage regarding Jesus as our Sabbath rest. And in it, the author of Hebrews exhorts his readers to enter into that rest that's still available to them. After three chapters of telling them that Jesus is superior to the angels, and that he is our apostle, that he is our high priest, he pleads with them not to harden their hearts against him, as their fathers hardened their hearts in the wilderness and ended up wandering for 40 years and be- And then this is what he says. Because of their unbelief, God denied that generation access to the Holy Land. They shall not enter into my rest. But in the same way that the author of Hebrews begs his readers not to make the same mistake by rejecting God's Sabbath rest in Jesus, he says this, There remains then, Hebrews 4, 9-11, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall away by following their example of disobedience. How do we enter that rest that still remains for God's people, church? By faith. By faith. By faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's the way that you rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. It's to come to Christ and say, listen, not the labors of my hands. 
There's nothing that I can bring to you that's going to make me acceptable in your eyes. But in the same way that God did everything that was necessary to rescue Israel from Egypt, he has done everything that is necessary to rescue you from Satan's sin and death. And you come to him with empty hands and a heart of faith saying, I trust what Christ has done, not what I can do, not my work, not my labor. That's what it means to have ultimate rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. And for those of you who have not taken that step this morning, Jesus has his arms extended to you to say, fine, rest in me. Give up all of your self-salvation projects. Give up all the things that you think are going to earn you standing and status and stature with me and just come empty-handed and embrace what I've already done to rescue you. And for those of you who have, here's the secret of the principle, is that the more the trust that you have in the finished work of Christ, the deeper your rest were unfinished. Even when there are emails that have not been answered. Because your identity is not based upon what somebody else thinks of you as someone who responds to an email in a prompt fashion. Listen, I get frustrated, just like the rest of you. Whenever I send an email, I don't hear back in a couple of days. Or I send a text, I don't hear back in a couple of hours. I know I'm not the only one. Right? But so much of our, this, this drive within us is a drive to be seen as someone who is prompt and responsible in the eyes of other people, not resting in our identity that we received in Christ, not because of anything we've done, but because of all the work that he has finished. So the author of Hebrews says, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts and turn away in disobedience and try to build your life on anything other than the rest that Christ has provided. There is a rhythm to life that God establishes from the time of creation, a pattern for us to follow. Will we cherish what God has called sacred? Will we enjoy that blessing? And will we, will we rest in the Lord of the Sabbath? I want to pray for us this morning as we close to that end. Would you join me? Father, today... I acknowledge there have been times and seasons in my own life in which I have thought of myself as an infinite being whose reserves are unlimited. And Father, my mental and emotional and physical health has paid the price for that. I pray for my friends this morning, for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help them to see Sabbath for what it is, as a sacred thing. Not just a duty to observe, but something to be delighted in and enjoyed and treasured for what it is. 
as a reflection on the fact that we are limited, as a reflection on the fact that we have been rescued if we're in Christ, as a reflection on the fact that this is a sign through all generations that we belong to you because we're resting in you and not in ourselves. And we would enjoy its blessing and be endued with prosperity and productivity and power. Our lives would not be misshapen by professional and personal obligations. That we would take seriously our responsibilities all six days. But we would hold a sacred, a seventh. Father, if there be anyone under the sound of my voice today who has not found eternal rest in Christ, pray that they would. They would rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. They would lay down all their righteous deeds. apart from Christ are like filthy rags and they would come empty with empty hands to your son the only one who's able to save and they would find that by faith they can receive your grace as their empty hand is taken into the hands of Christ, their Savior. And as they find rest. Father, for my brothers and sisters who have placed their empty hands into the hands of their Savior, I pray you would help them. pray you'd help them whenever the pressures of life and the demands on their time become so heavy that they are tempted to set aside a day of rest and reflection and recalibration for more productivity. I pray that as they fight that temptation, You would give them the grace to trust you more fully so they can enjoy rest more deeply. May you make us into that kind of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning, church, as we sing in response to what God has said to us in His Word. If you have questions about the sermon this morning, I'll be at the kiosk in the back of the room on your way out. I'd love to connect with you. If you're a guest with us, I'd love to meet you. Shake your hand and introduce myself. As we sing this morning, may we rejoice in the finished work of Christ, who is indeed our Sabbath.